This is a relay project. The discourse starts right now with Cheryl Oates and Erica Baroudis. Welcome back to the discourse. After a little time off uh, during the holiday season, we are back. And wow, Cheryl, I don't think we could have uh, picked a better week to jump back into what's happening in Alberta. Uh, your former boss the uh, and former premier and the current leader of the official opposition announced this week that she's stepping down. We approved and built the Calgary Cancer Centre, a decision that was at least a decade overdue. We stood up for the rights of working people, improving their access to unions, increasing their time off, protecting their safety in the workplace. And we were the first jurisdiction in North America to raise the minimum wage to $15 per hour, making a real difference in the life of Alberta's working poor and tens of thousands of young families. We secured Alberta's first pipeline to Tidewater in over 50 years ensuring that the return to Albertans for the sale of the resources we all own is permanently increased. We eliminated coal-fired electricity in Alberta, thereby increasing the health of countless citizens and at the same time kick-starting our renewable energy industry to be the fastest growing on the continent, all while significantly reducing our emissions in one fell swoop. And finally, in the midst of a recession caused by the international collapse in the price of oil, seriously folks, I didn't cause that, we cut child poverty in half. But as I said, we didn't get it all right. And Albertans told us so in April of 2019. Rachel filmed that video in the morning and spoke to her caucus and spoke to her staff and spoke to her colleagues um, before going out and making the announcement to the masses that she will not be leading the party into the next election. And like you heard in that video, so much went into that choice for her. And she's been talking about this for a while because, of course, you know, you lose a couple elections in a row. This is prudent. This is what a, any leader should be thinking about. So thinking about uh, what's best for the party, what's best for her personally, what's best for the NDP as a brand moving forward. And, um, you know, I think it's it's bittersweet because uh, it's a real opportunity for renewal for the NDP, but it's also just like you saw in that video in that clip there an incredible opportunity to really look back at everything that rachel has accomplished in her 15 years in public office yeah i definitely think no matter what side of the aisle you are on um you know you can appreciate the work she's done as a public servant and you know hopefully get some rest after all these years in office now i know that we kind of shared some of her highlights of her term she kind of then goes into talking about you know why she stayed on after the the 2019 election what she wanted to do for the party so as she leaves now um where do you think she wants to leave the party and and on what kind of foot well, you know, it's really interesting because Rachel has done what so few political leaders are able to do, especially in a time where, you know, you see policies flip flop back and forth as different parties move into power and undo what their successors have, their predecessors have done before them. Rachel has not only permanently changed Alberta, she has permanently changed the NDP. And the party, even you know, after she is no longer leader, will still be an extremely professionalized organization with more members, more money, more donors than it has ever, ever had. And I know there are people out there that are like, oh, one and done, Rachel is the brand, There's the, you know, the NDP is nothing without her. 
the NDP is so powerful and so professionalized, and she has instilled this belief in, you know, not just the NDP, but also members, that not only is it worth fighting for, but everybody plays a role. And that's, I mean, she doesn't need to be leader for that to continue. I think the party is in great shape, and she's leaving it in, a, in an extremely... Uh, uh, Good position. So, what what is the next like couple months going to look like? I mean, the party's selecting the rules, um, and we'll have those shortly, and then we'll start seeing all of the usual suspects that we probably all have on our bingo card, <laughs> um, and some some others pop up. But what is what is it going to look like? Um, you know, for for her as the leader of opposition. You know, it, this is sort of crazy to think about because I was in I was a staffer in the caucus when we had four members and we're the fourth party, which was the last leadership that the NDP held. And I think that this leadership's going to look a lot different. Like that was a leadership race between a small group of candidates. Um, Rachel was, you know, sort of seen as the front runner from the beginning. She won handily. It was a very, very um, sort of low profile race, given it was the fourth party. This is different. This is different. Like this person could potentially be the next premier of the province. This person will be the leader of the opposition. Um, this is a job that a lot more people and people with profile and platform and experience in the legislature are interested in holding. And so I think it's going to be a really high profile race. And I think it's going to be an opportunity to really talk about both within the party, but, you know, more broadly about what it is that the NDP stand for. Yeah. And so interesting because the UCP just went through one mm-hmm. about a year ago. Very, very different rules. Um, like you said, uh, you're going to see a bunch of different people. Is there benefit? And I know the rules haven't come out, but um, for an insider of the party versus someone on the outside based on historical rules that you've seen and, and what can we kind of expect from what you think the party leadership is going to try and work through? Yeah, I think like, of course, there's going to be internal candidates. It's quite possible there'll be external candidates as well. I think what's different about the NDP is that the Constitution ensures that those that are seeking membership within the party and those who are seeking to lead the party hold the values of the party. And that's not necessarily the case in all parties in all sections. Um, But for the NDP, that really is a test. And so, um, you know, those who are maybe getting into it for the wrong reasons or haven't been around for a long time, it's going to be a lot harder, if not impossible, for them to seek those opportunities. Yeah, we have a term called a two-minute Tory, uh, <laughs> where I think a lot of our but you know, party leadership rules and, and membership selling uh, is quote unquote very grassroots. And so, you know, you do see more of those bulk things. But what I'm hearing from from you is that there is maybe more of a process to vet those memberships, make sure that you're not just buying for for change or to get mm-hmm. a certain maybe like rogue candidate in. So we'll see a little bit more control um, in the process. Is that fair? Yeah, I think we'll have to wait to see. Like, I haven't seen the rules yet. The party will put forward the rules and put them to provincial council for a vote. But I mean, historically, if we're looking historically, the NDP in Alberta has always reserved the right to ensure that, you know, especially those seeking to lead the party, hold the party's values. And I think that is, like you said, quite different from the UCP. And uh, we've seen the UCP, you know, the downside of that, where you can have massive groups of people organized to sort of move the party in another direction. The NDP is in in some ways protected itself from that. Hmm. Um, So I want to get into some of the resignation speech. I found a few points interesting because she did and what we just played for for our listeners is, you know, some of the highlights. I thought it was interesting. There was no mention of the carbon tax. Yes, I'm going to use that word. That's going to be my word of 2024. (laughs) Interesting. There was no mention of the carbon tax, except for when she said we made mistakes. (laughs) Um, There was mention of coal, which I think is very timely given, you know, some of the feedback we've heard on what happened in this last week about, you know, what is potentially the uh, moving away from coal and at such a rapid rate 
rate? Did that impact it in any way? I know experts have been debating that. And then I actually noticed too that there wasn't a lot on healthcare. And that's something obviously right now that Rachel's been talking a lot about as, as there's reform to AHS. So can you kind of walk me through like, you know, why she picked some of those? I mean, some of them are obvious, um, but maybe just talk through like why the, some of those highlights are, are so important and near and dear to her heart. Yeah, I think like if you look at the one she picked, she picked something sort of like from each sector. So it's not like she just stayed in social. She's talking about economic as well. She's talking about balancing a budget through an unprecedented oil downturn and then, you know, taking a little jab at herself and at the rhetoric at the time of those, mm-hmm. you know, saying that she caused the downturn in oil prices. Um, but I think she's looking at things that have that will withstand her legacy, that will be her legacy. So, you know, some of the work that she's done in healthcare in terms of like fully funding it or making sure that their people have access to healthcare where they need it, there's not really a long lasting legacy there. Like a lot of the pieces that the NDP brought in in healthcare have not been continued or have been undone. But pieces like, you know, moving away from coal fired power, that's a legacy. Like those are those are emissions that have been reduced in Alberta and, and you know, I guess we'll see, <laughs> never say never, but um, that's, an, that's a long lasting impact that Rachel has had. Like when I look at Alberta and I look at what she's done, there are pieces, there, it is so usual for a government to come in and say, we're gonna undo all the stuff that our, our predecessors did and we're gonna do it our way. And there are big pieces that Rachel brought in that two UCP governments, at least so far, have chosen not to undo. So, you know, the reason that we have a two-party system and that it has stayed in Alberta is partly because Rachel took big money out of politics. And now we're playing in a much more even playing field than we were prior to 2015 when big corporations could donate, when unions could donate, when out-of-province people could donate, and the power was not in the hands of voting Albertans, but rather in those with the deepest pockets. Um, and then she put a limit on campaign spending. And so changes like those it would be really hard for someone to undo that now, partly because you know it's the right thing to do, um, but partly because it's just, it is uh, kind of um, fundamental to a just society in Alberta and the politics just really aren't there to undo it. Um, but it's allowed for two parties at least so far to continue on a really fair and even playing field. And I, that is part of her legacy for sure. And so if you look at, because I know you know her very well, and again, we're up here to support her yesterday, there's difference between legacy of like political and and then kind of like her, the ones that pull at her heartstrings. Like, what do you think she she wants Albertans to, to see her as? Because she obviously shared her, her mm-hmm. list, but like, where do you think Albertans or where she would want to see um, her name go down in history? Um, I think there's a number of things, but honestly, I know that she is immensely proud of having cut child poverty in half. Mm. I really like when you think about, you know, four years is such a short time in office, like who you really made a difference for to know that faced with all the economic uncertainty and instability that Alberta had at the time, she still managed to make life that much better for those kids. I know that that will be something that she, you know, talks about proudly and wears on her heart for the rest of her career, whatever she does after this. So I just want to just be clear, because I did make a joke about the carbon tax being where she said we didn't get everything right. Do you think that's what she meant? The carbon tax? Yeah. Um, I mean, I, I listened to a couple interviews she did subsequently, like after her uh, press conference where she got asked questions about the carbon tax. And she kind of answered and said, like, you know, maybe it wasn't my most popular policy. I think what she said is, you know, maybe it wasn't the right thing to do. 
uh, in like looking back though, she's still very, very committed to policy that curbs emissions while still allowing for economic development, um, which is what the NDP had in mind when they brought in a carbon tax. Was it popular? Was it successful? I think looking back, we can all agree no. And I think, you know, it's easier for Rachel to say that now that she's um, announced that she's stepping down as leader. Yeah. And I know we do have a guest that I'm excited to get to, but I want to just ask questions about what everyone's like thinking about as who's going to put their name forward, who's going to, who's going to run their big shoes to fill, right? Like almost this, impossible. I know. And, and, and I've heard people just say it's not, you know, replacing it's, you know, what do you do for, um, for someone that's like you said, a big part of that party. So mm-hmm. um, who are the people that you think are going to step up? Um, you know, we have a list and there's been some external, some internal. I have my my people, I think, from both like... Who okay, is, go. Okay, okay, go. Okay, so mine... But I'll tell you. <laughs> delaying, I see. Um, but I, I think like there's two. There's, there's um, you know, if if Thomas Ukazik, Nahid Nenshi, Don Ivis and all the like speculation there, I'd love for them to run because they're like, I think maybe not so NDP brand and actually um, I think would would maybe put the party in less of a strategic position. Then there's people like uh, Kathleen and Raki, who I think are part of the more centrist um, NDPers. Like Rachel's taken the party very center. I mean, she talked about a pipeline in her um, in her highlights. Mm-hmm. And so that's not, that's kind of atypical of an NDPer. So, you know, I have where what would be harmful to the UCP of that middle ground would be kind of Racky and and um, Kathleen. But then I hope, like my hope is that you guys elect someone that like is just going to put you back into like a four person opposition, and you'll have to put an ad again. I have to say, my favorite ad of the NDP ever was when there was a tarp and there was four of them sitting on it, and it was like the tarp just got a little like cr- more crowded when you had four members, and that's where I hope the NDP go back to, but. Um, you guys have managed to capture a lot of that that center ground. I obviously don't hope for that. Um, <laughs> but I think, I mean, I think there are a number of MLAs, the sitting MLAs that will seek the job. Like, I mean, everyone has sort of uh, been talking publicly about Kathleen Ganley running, about Sarah Hoffman running, about Racky Pancholi, and maybe David Shepard running. I think it's possible there's a few more as well. And then, I mean, the outsiders, how could you have possibly sort of declared you were running until now. So I think we will start to see. Premier Daniel Smith did <laughs> before the premier stepped down. <laughs> it's possible that new Democrats are a little better behaved. Hey, uh, um, she but knew I, what she wanted. <laughs> I think there, I, I mean, not only what do I think it makes the race more exciting for outsiders to sort of show interest in it, whether they decide ultimately to run or not. But I think it also demonstrates legitimacy of the party. Like this isn't a quiet for, you know, seat fourth party race anymore. This is a big deal. And people who have multiple career options are seriously considering running for the leadership. So I think outside candidates would be really interesting to watch as well. It is a new year. And with that comes new goals. I know many of you out there have aspirations to get more organized in this the busy world that we live in and who doesn't. So the real question is, How can you make this goal of being more organized a reality? Well, our friends over at California Closets are the best partner you could ask for to keep you accountable with organizational solutions for every room, every space, every nook, and every cranny, all while working within your budget. 
Want to organize your closet, garage, laundry room, entertainment uh, center, mudroom, bedrooms. The list is so long I'm starting to mumble. Linen closets, playroom, home office. The list goes on and on and they have a solution that will work for you. Reach out to California Closets by visiting www.californiaclosets.ca to set up your free consultation and let the crushing of your 2024 organizational goals begin. I'm excited to uh, introduce our first official guest. We had uh, Premier Daniel Smith and Rachel Notley calling questions in previous episodes. I'm excited to have uh, former Premier Alison Redford on the show and, you know, go back to those lovely days in 2014 <laughs> down memory lane and explore that with her. So welcome, Alison Redford. Thanks. I'm really glad to be here. And it was really interesting to listen to the discussion. I know that when we talked about this, I guess, a couple of weeks ago, um, we didn't expect what happened yesterday to happen uh, just then, but uh, I think it is really a good time to reflect on, you know, who we are as politicians, uh, what premiers accomplish, whether it matters if you're from a different political party or not. Um, it's it's interesting to think about that, and so I'm glad to be here to talk to you about that. Erica and I, you know, have both now supported premiers uh, uh, and former premiers as they get ready to announce that they are, you know, planning to leave the party and planning to ultimately leave politics. Um, but that cannot compare to what it must feel like to actually stand at that podium. And I remember watching, um, you know, when you made your resignation speech, that slow walk down the staircase um, as you made it to the podium. And I just can't imagine. So maybe you could offer some insight into like what is going through your head in that moment. It is such a, you know, holding such a high position in Alberta politics and knowing this is the moment where you sort of have the opportunity to, to begin to define your legacy. I don't think that anyone in political life should define their legacy. I think their legacy will be uh, judged for who they are over time and history and, and what happens. But I know politicians do tend to do that. And when I saw uh, Rachel's speech yesterday, I think you're right, Erica. I think there were a lot of similarities because there is that moment and it's your one opportunity to be able to talk about what you're proud of, whether or not people remember in the long term or not, separate thing. Um, yeah, walking down those stairs was something. After the speech, I spoke to a number of reporters when I when I resigned who said that in hearing the speech, they weren't sure if I was going to resign or call an election, which <laughs> I thought was quite funny. Uh, but I, I think that it's that moment where you really reflect on what the responsibility has been, not in terms of being a political leader, but being a public servant and being the premier of the province of Alberta. Uh, you know, I was the first woman. Rachel and I were elected the same year. Uh, I was the first uh, female premier. I think that had a, a lot of um, challenges that I think we sort of uh, forged a path for so that it was a little easier for now two subsequent premiers that are women to to uh, to uh, take on that role. Um, that day, I was lucky enough almost unfortunately to be with my daughter that morning because she was on a school trip to the legislature. Uh, and so the day before in question period, um, she was in the gallery and was watching me with her class um, as premier in question period. And that also was something that was very um, emotional for me. Um, and I noticed that yesterday in Rachel's speech as well. You know, my mom passed away between just three or four days before I was elected leader of the party. So she never knew that I was premier. And I think that was something I took away from what Rachel said yesterday, that 
you know, her, her father didn't ever know that she was the premier of the province. And, uh, and that's, that's very bittersweet. Um, you know, in, in some ways, um, as parents, I think our parents had to be political animals to create people like us who could take this on. Um, but it's, it's a tough go. Um, Premier Smith yesterday talked about how it's very challenging to be in that office. She's now had about a year and a half and is starting to appreciate how challenging it is to be in the office. Uh, and it is. And I think it's important that we respect people that have put their time in for that public service. And also to think about how, as Albertans, once you're in that position, which is a tremendous privilege, you, you do start to think not only about what the political platform is that you got elected on, but also what you think is best for the province and what Albertans want. And it's quite interesting to see how over time, even with changes in political parties, which have been more recent for us, but always with changes in premiers, we still see the ongoing development of our infrastructure, our hospitals, our roads, our pipelines. Um, and there's, there's subtleties, certainly, in terms of how premiers will deliver differently, um, whether they'll balance the budget. You know, sometimes there's a surplus, sometimes they're not. I had both um, <laughs> and many premiers did. But if you look at how we've grown as a province, I think it's because once premiers come into office, they understand that they have a different responsibility to the province than only being the leader of their party. And I think that's why we have been a successful province. and. Uh, why we're very lucky to live here. Um, thanks for that, and thanks for the perspective, because I, I, I agree with everything that you've said. Um, you talked a little bit about sort of paving the way for the women that came after you, because you were Alberta's first female premier. Um, and I, so I wanted to just take a minute to talk about, because I feel there was a lot, there was a lot surrounding your resignation. And some of that discourse around that might have looked a little bit different in 2024. Looking yeah. back for you and as the discourse has changed and as the expectations on women have changed, how much of it do you think was fair and how different would, do you think it would be today? When I ran for leader, I announced my leadership on Twitter. And that was this big novelty that we were going to be a campaign based on social media. And you look at what's happened since 2011 in terms of how we understand political discussion on social media, you know, what we think of comments on Twitter, how we now understand that all of that social media stuff is about clicks. I think that that when when we first started, when I first started as a female politician, there was not an expectation as to what a female politician should do, how they should behave. You know, the first time I ran for a nomination, I had someone stand up in a meeting and tell me they couldn't support me because how was I going to be a mother? And yet now we have legislative rules where women who are elected can sit in the assembly and breastfeed. I mean, that's th those are pretty profound changes. And I think that uh, if we think through sort of the expectations on female politicians and the understanding that family is important, but that we can do both, that's very different than than uh, what we saw before. You know, when when I think about when Hillary Clinton was running for president and the amount of you know backlash on social media, half of the commentary was basically shrugging shoulders saying, well, of course they're gonna say that, that's what happens on social media. Whereas I think when, when we first started, we're living in a world where people believe that everything that was typed or written on social media was true. Mm -hmm. 
<laughs> and uh, I think there's just been a shift in terms of political discourse and how we understand that generally, but also certainly in terms of of, uh, of women. You know, I mean, all the premiers that, uh, that came before me um, would travel with their spouses. Um, I didn't travel with my spouse, so people thought I was a single mom. <laughs> but if I traveled with my daughter, and even though I paid her expenses, why was I doing that? Why was I bringing my daughter along with me? So, so all of these sorts of shifts, whereas now, you know, we see that the prime minister, as a good father, spends time with his children, takes them on trips, you know, as taxpayers, we pay for his nannies. Um, it's a very different world now than it was 10 years ago. Thanks, Alison. I, I think, you know, you're absolutely right. The world has evolved so much and the expectations around women in office and also, you know, this, this sort of agreement about how we can support women to be successful, both, you know, in as mothers or uh, as spouses or, or men, you know, speaking frankly, and allow them to be successful in public office has certainly changed. Um, and, you know, we, uh, Erica and I both watched your resignation speech uh, before we did the show today, and you had to resign under much different conditions than Rachel had to. She got to pick her moment. She got to pick her timing. She got to sort of, you know, start to write her legacy. Yours was much different. And my, my question is sort of, you know, much has changed since you were there, and much would probably look different now. But was there places where looking back now you feel like you did cross the line? where you feel like maybe you took it too far and that criticism was warranted? I've given that a lot of thought. I mean, it, it was very difficult for me to, to make that shift in the way that I did. Um, I think as a politician, there might have been things that people didn't like that I did. But I, I, I mean, I said this to, to reporters at the time. Um, I was a very firm, opinionated leader. I had very definite ideas about what should happen. I don't think much different than Danielle does now or, or Rachel did. I just think that that's not what people expected from female politicians. Um, I also think that, you know, as a politician, there might have been policies that I introduced that some people didn't like, but I don't think there was anything that was sort of, you know, at, frankly, as controversial as something like, um, you know, uh, Premier Stelmack's royalty framework or or the carbon tax. I mean, we balanced a budget. We invested in infrastructure, we supported mental health. Um, there was a lot of, of good work that we did, um, that our caucus did, and that work continued well after in other governments. So so I don't think so. I mean, I was once, since I've left office, I was I was on a call for a, 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 an interview for a board that I now sit on and a fellow who was much older said, you know, I, I read some of that stuff about you and, you know, <laughs> they say that you were tough and, very uh, determined and hard to get along with or stuck to your positions. You know, what do you think about that? And I said, well, you know what? I won't say the name of the person. I'm pretty sure that if they said those things about you as a 75 year old white man, you'd take them as a compliment. And he said, yeah, you're right, I would. But, so I don't know. But some, I mean, it's tough because like you, like you just said, you balance the budget. That's not always easy mm -hmm. to do in Alberta, but in some, in in many cases, when people look back at your career um, as a premier, that's overshadowed by things like the Sky Palace and, and and expenses. Is there anything there where you think like, and I'm I'm I was viewing from the outside, so there could have been things going on inside that I'm unaware of. But is there anything there where you feel like there was, you know, well, a place where you, you know, overstepped? Not at all, because I didn't overstep, and you know it. For the rest of my life, I will have to answer that question. But I mean, my goodness, we went through that. It was all 
determined that there was nothing there that I had anything to do with. There were three RCMP investigations, <laughs> criminal investigations into whether or not I did anything wrong. And categorically, all three times, the answer was no. The Ethics Commissioner Alberta, I think unjustly, referred an ethics inquiry to BC. They didn't deal with it. So then they hired a retired Supreme Court of Canada judge to go through the same thing again. And the outcome of that was that there was nothing wrong. So, I mean, I was certainly, I think, put under more scrutiny than any premier ever has been. But none of it was founded. And um, it was quite hurtful. And it was embarrassing. And um, it did affect my family. And so I really welcome the chance to talk about it because I think that was a time when people thought that all bets were off and that they could do anything they wanted. Sometimes I think when politics gets polarized, um, people forget that the people in those offices, not just me, but everyone, are really trying to do a good job to do their best and that these you know, rhetorical positions or, um, you know, political tactics take a real toll. I think one of the other interesting things is that's topical is around the budget. Like you said, you balanced a budget. <laughs> um, you worked, you know, the bitumen bubble was uh, something that happened during your time. Like, you know, as we're looking that we'll have a budget next month, oil's not at the price that, you know, was... Um, that, that anyone expected or, or hoped for. Uh, what, what does that look like for the government? I mean, I'm not sure you want to put your shoes, your feet back in the pre, but if I was premier, but um, what does this look like from the process of how do you find that balance of being a fiscal conservative as well as being able to, like you said, provide for the services and be that public servant for all Albertans? I think that the legislation that the government passed last spring to require balanced budget uh, to pay off the debt, to use uh, non-renewable resources to do that work is important. Uh, we didn't pass legislation, but that's what we did. That's what our budget policies were. Um, and I think that Albertans want that. Um, you know, I, when, uh, when the NDP government came in, I think the debt was something like, I don't know, 12 billion. And, you know, at the end of that time, it was closer to 89. Um, since a conservative government's come back in, it's down to about 80. Um, those are big numbers. And and uh, we're proud. Of, I'm proud of the fact that we kept those very low and we're continuing to pay off debt and balance the budgets. You know, the revenue, pr revenue will always vary. And it's important that when you're premier, you're balancing or you're, you're building a budget not based on what you think the highest possible number will be but really look at what industry is thinking, what markets are thinking, and know that the general discussion now is that oil this year will be somewhere between 75 and $80. So, you know, don't build a budget based on $100 oil. Um, and, and understand that because of that, there will be, um, depending on what political party you're from, choices made as to whether or not you're going to have a deficit budget or whether or not you're gonna cut back on spending. Um, I, I think generally Albertans care a lot about the debt. They care about the, the amount of money that Alberta owes in the long term and what the legacy of that will be for future generations. It's, it is surprising um, still how people mix up debt and deficit. So, you know, you have a budget, you don't balance it, you have a deficit. That deficit then goes on to the debt. Um, so, you know, we've seen um, 
higher than normal taxes last year, tax income last year, corporate and personal. We've seen higher royalty amounts. Um, we know that there are, um, there are pressures on those. We know that the government will stick to their legislation. I think Albertans generally, from when I was premier and for what I see now, they do think of a provincial budget as an awful lot like their household budget. And I think that right now, if we look at where we are in terms of um, household expenses, cost of energy, interest rates, uh, inflation, that they're, they would be expecting to see a very responsible budget this year where uh, the government was not forecasting high prices on oil or, reven or uh, resources revenue and, uh, and are conservative about how they're going to spend taxpayer dollars. When you first introduced your first budget as Premier, I was a news anchor and I have a clip of me. I wish I had it to play right now, but I have a clip of me sitting on the news deck desk talking about you introducing your budget as you anticipate a catastrophic drop in oil prices. So <laughs> what do you think about the fact that 10 years later, so much has changed and here we are talking about the same issues in Alberta? You know, we tried to do Energy East. We were working on Trans Mountain. These are such big projects that once you become premier, you understand the importance of them and you just try to keep moving them through. And that pipeline was important because it allowed us, it does allow us, she's right, to get the actual world price for our resources. We're, we're about to, not quite yet. Um, but, uh, but you know, we didn't have that before. And so you you then had a situation where Albertans would say, well, you know, oil's $100 a barrel, how come we're only getting 70? Um, and that was what Erica referred to as the bitumen bubble or the differential, right? And and that's just the nature of building a budget in Alberta, no matter which which political party you happen to represent before you became the premier. And I remember the first year that we had to look at that, we talked about the systemic weakness in building Alberta budgets because in the past, premiers had always just relied on that, that resource revenue to pay off whatever the deficit would be and not to put that money toward the debt. And you know, we saw things like that when Premier Klein um, put the $400, the, the Ralph Spucks check in place, right? That was $400 to each individual Alberta citizen, which was resource money because it had been a good year for resource revenue. You could have done that, or you could could have put that money uh, towards towards uh, paying off the debt. Uh, when I when I was running against Premier Smith, when she was representing the Wild Rose, um, that was one of her platforms. That if there was resource revenue left over, she would be giving that directly to Albertans, paying it out individually to Albertans, and we had to be make. We decided to take a very clear stand that that is not what we were going to do and that it was important to pay off debt. And uh, and that's what we got elected on. And that's what we did. Uh, and I think Albertans knew that and they understood the importance of being fiscally responsible. And not surprisingly, now uh, Premier Smith is Premier and has a very different point of view. Um, you know, I, I have to tell you, I remember when Premier Notley was in opposition and she didn't ever refer to the oil sands. She talked about the tar sands. She became premier and they became the oil sands. And, and you know, you just do that because your job is no longer to be a partisan leader. It's to try to put in place 
fiscal policies and social policies that are going to respond to what Albertans need and want and to do that in a responsible manner. And I think that, that that's uh, what we've seen from Alberta premiers of all political stripes. What do you think is, you know, the thing keeping the government up at night right now besides budget? But I mean, you've got inflation, housing crisis, cost of living, all these things that one have like some connection to the federal government. But what, what do you think if, you know, is, is their biggest challenge that they're going to face? In terms of who's responsible for what part of fiscal policy, provinces are responsible for an awful lot, right? You know, we we fund education, we fund healthcare, we fund infrastructure, a lot of things that are very much based on expenditure. And you will then see federal governments come in, almost regardless of, again, party, and make policy pronouncements that impact your ability to manage your budget at a provincial level and not really have to take much accountability. You know, so I mean, we 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 see, uh, I think, what I think about as an Albertan, and I'm pretty sure that the government thinks about it, is they know that Albertans are finding it really challenging right now to manage their household budgets, to pay their expenses, to um, have certainty about what the future looks like. And the sorts of things that are impacting them are not necessarily issues that provinces have a lot of control over. You know, so um, you know, I, I was speaking five or six months ago on um, whether or not, uh, you know, premiers should be able to have a conversation with the governor of the Bank of Canada. And then premiers wrote letters to the governor of the Bank of Canada. Well, yes, the governor of the Bank of Canada is independent and he does set interest rates. But at the same time, there's no way that the prime minister, through his minister of finance, is not having regular meetings with the governor of the bank about what's going on in terms of Canada's economy. And it's very frustrating, I think, for premiers to not be able to um, have the sort of impact on those sorts of policies uh, when they become responsible for delivering them. You know, I, I think one thing that we've seen some really good announcements on in the last little while has been how to address homelessness. And those are announcements, funnily enough, that I think come mostly from cooperation between municipal governments and provincial governments. So we see in Edmonton this idea of a new reception center to try to um, um, you know, get rid of encampments and put people where they need to be to get wraparound services, which was something that we put in place, uh, wraparound services, when, when, when I was in government. Um, you know, we can see the federal government make you know, sort of broad national pronouncements about, um, you know, taxation on non-resident properties that doesn't actually have much of an impact on ending homelessness. But what it does do is it impacts the ability of people that have property to earn an income from that and do something with it or be taxed on it and put it back into the, into the, the, the 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 provincial purse so that something can be done with it. And I, I think that's got to be one of the most frustrating things for for premiers generally. Uh, but I certainly think that that the idea of making sure that people can afford to pay their bills and support their their kids and provide them with a quality of life and how to balance that in this budget will be important because there will be people, of course, who say, you know, open the taps and spend as much money as you can. And then there'll be others that don't want that. And so it's always going to be a balance as to whether or not you can uh, you can accommodate 
everyone that has a different idea about what to do. Um, I'm wondering now, we officially have a united conservative party. In your view, are conservatives united in Alberta? I think there's lots of people in Alberta that are conservatives that aren't members of the United Conservative Party. That's been a legacy of the time that uh, I was in office. Um, you know, we, we as conservatives, as progressive conservatives, used to be proud of the fact that we were a big tent. And, uh, and I think that when I was elected leader and when I was elected premier, that we still were that and wanted to be that. Um, I think that now the parties are much more um, ideologically aligned and it's not as easy now to, to determine who is a conservative and why they're a conservative. Do you lean more to one of the two uh, main parties in Alberta or where do you sit uh, politically? I think the thing that for me is most important is to look at whether or not as a government and a provincial leadership, you are creating a climate of respect and acceptance. I think that speaks a lot to how we talk about social policy um, and how we create systems that support vulnerable people. You know, I, I was always of the view, and it's why we did so much work on safe communities, that a lot of people that are vulnerable are not there through any fault of their own. There are so many circumstances that have led people to places where they've fallen through the cracks or uh, there, well, there aren't programs available or programs have been cut. You know, I, I get very nervous when I hear um, the work, um, some, some of the language around uh, trans issues you know we were we as a government um put in place legislation to respect uh and and um, provide real rights to the lgbtq plus community and it makes me very nervous when i hear provincial leaders talking about that or even abortion issues abortion rights and uh so for me, it would be very difficult to align myself with a party that was not prepared to stand up um, for what I think are the right side of those issues, to allow people to have choice, to respect how people live, to ensure that people that are living in vulnerable communities, whether it's because they are living in poverty or because they identify differently, um, don't feel safe. And when I when I hear friends of mine and, and children uh, of my friends and even people in my family who are members of that community say they're not, don't feel safe, that scares me. And I, I get very nervous about a government that's not going to uh, ensure that every Albertan has the right to live and be protected and feel safe. Really appreciate you, Allison, just diving right in as uh, I didn't put you in the hot seat, but Cheryl may have one or two times. Uh, but uh, yeah, hoping that you'll you'll come back and really just appreciate your your thoughts. I have to tell you that I, I, I just think it's wonderful what you're doing. Um, it's so great that this kind of discussion is taking place. Uh, I think it's wonderful to be able to have a discussion that doesn't turn into a polarization one way or the other. I became justice minister on a Wednesday night and on Thursday morning, I had to go into the CTV studios 
to uh, to I don't talk about being justice minister, which I had, had about an hour's experience. And uh, I went in, and it was about seven o'clock in the morning. It was the studios here in Calgary, and there was this. Um, older gentleman who was a security guard who I think was from the Caribbean and I said something about justice minister and he said oh okay just wait here so I'm sitting in the chair and I'm waiting and I'm looking at my watch and I'm like I'm supposed to be on by now and I said to him you know I think I think maybe I'm like we're supposed to be starting at seven or something like that and he said oh yeah but we're just waiting for the justice minister and I kind of looked around like it was like (laughs) candid camera and I said no I'm the justice minister. <laughs> and I'd never said that before. And he looked at me and said, really? Oh, <laughs> well, glad he said that's great. <laughs> like, yeah. Other things I guess he so, could have said. Yeah, you know, you you take on different jobs and you never know exactly what they'll what they'll do. But you know, I look at everything that you two have done in your careers and how you're taking what you've learned and the people that you know and the perspectives and experience you have and having these public discussions. And I, I think that's really fantastic. So congratulations, it's it's really been fun. And I wish you well, and I'll keep watching. Thank you so much. Thanks for your time. Take care. Well, Christmas is over. 2024 is already kicking off to be a very, very busy year. And I think we, you know, we know now there will be an NDP leadership race, waiting to see the rules and the timeline of that. But what else can we expect, Erica? Before we wrap up here, let's just take a couple minutes to talk about what are the big political events of 2024? Yeah, well, I mean, we talked about it with Alison Redford. The budget's going to be big. You know, people kind of getting aware of like, well, why does it cost so much? What happened last week? Is this going to happen again? You know, did me turning off all my lights and keeping like a candle going or whatever really help the cause? And is this our new normal? Uh, it, It gets attention when something happens. And so... You know, I think that's something that hopefully Albertans want to educate themselves a little bit more on to understand where some of these these policy decisions of the past and present have impacted what their uh, statement says at totally. the other, uh, end of the month. Because, I mean, the timing could not be better for Daniel Smith <laughs> and Rebecca Schultz, uh, Minister Schultz, who, uh, you know, have been running a campaign about how unstable the grid is and how it's everybody's fault but theirs. Um, And this just brings it to the forefront. Like, you're right. Nobody wants to talk about electricity. It's complicated policy. It's overwhelming. It's really hard to, you know, do an elevator pitch on what the complex policies that guide Alberta's stability are. Um, But people are talking about it now. Like, to go on Twitter on whatever night the alert went to our phones and just see Twitter blow up with people talking about the stability of our grid is crazy. Okay, well, that's it for our show today. Uh, We're on a new schedule this year, so... Uh, be ready for these to drop first thing Thursday mornings. And as always, please like and subscribe to our show on YouTube and wherever you get your podcasts. The Discourse is hosted by Cheryl Oates and Erica Baroudis. Follow on Instagram at The Discourse Pod. Subscribe to The Discourse on YouTube and wherever you get your podcasts.